All right, welcome to lesson 4.5. You're back with James and Tom here from Brisbane. Howdy. And in this episode, we're going to be talking through the concept of ground living. So another one of our, probably both of our favorites, uh, which is why we've obviously chosen to do these episodes. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a really, really important practice that we feel is missing. And, you know, from our own perspectives as physiotherapists, we see, you know, a lot of people um, who have maybe have been given a lot of different exercises to do and exercises are great, but if they're just doing mobility exercises and not actually, or, and then stiffening up throughout the day, um, it becomes a real problem because they just take one step forward, one step back. So that's, that's getting into the weeds a little bit, but we might as well just start with our usual definition the way we, the way we think about ground living at the moment. And that is ground living is the practice of radically reducing the time spent using supportive technologies. So chairs are a big one of those supportive technologies, but you could also add in shoes to that. Um, and then increasing the time spent sitting and moving on the ground. Um, and you could also just add in connecting to the ground. So this practice can actually play a massive role um, in either preventing if you do it early enough or reversing the negative effects of um, sedentarism that has that generally accumulate over most people's life um, because our culture is so sedentary um, and sort of sits for most of the day in general, um, then ground living is a really good antidote to that. So that's pretty much what we're, I was alluding to before is that if you're doing all these exercises for, you know, say an hour a day, if you're doing really great and eight hours a day, you're spent in one position, then uh, that becomes a massive problem. One step forward, one step back versus spending a lot of time in lots of different positions um, which is really facilitated through the practice of ground living. And this is where, uh, yeah, this is following on from movement nutrition, but mm. understanding that concept and then coming and listening to ground living, you really get a sense of the exercise, the rehab, all the gym stuff that like, they're the energy bites they're the exercises or sometimes the work. Whereas, you know, sitting should be, and what we believe to be more of that regular go-to all day. And essentially it gives you more time to do what you want to do. So play games or have hockey because you've got mobility, you've got the strength, which we'll touch on, on what we believe those things to mean and spend less time mobilizing the hips or mobilizing your ankle because they're stiff because they just naturally won't be as stiff. Exactly. Yeah. And so if we, if we talk about the sort of evolutionary and historical background to this, um, then it'll make more sense as well. And so really for the vast majority of our evolutionary history, humans have been constantly interacting with the ground in some way. So, you know, we're land animals. So we're obviously born on the land for the most part. Um, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, from, from the get-go, we are either, you know, crawling, squatting, walking, running, playing, hunting and gathering, eating and even sleeping. And all of that is interacting um, or at least in close contact with the earth. And it's really only since the most recent, you know, relatively recent in evolutionary terms, um, sort of adoption of these supportive technologies like chairs and shoes, that there's been this trend of disconnecting from uh, the ground. And you would add beds into that as well. Um, and so 
the allure of these technologies is that it's like, well, it makes, it makes us comfortable. Um, and, you know, we, we put on these cushion, big supportive cushion shoes and it's more, you know, comfortable and, you know, our, our feet don't have to do as much. And so it's like, oh, cool. Um, same as sitting in a really nice comfy chair. It does feel really good, but in the long run, it means that you're much more likely to spend more time in one position rather than lots of different positions. So that, that sort of allure of comfort is quite a, um, what's the word? It's like a, it's a hidden danger. It's like the silent killer, basically. Yeah. And I think one of the things to point out to people like early on is there's nothing wrong with being comfortable yeah. and there's nothing wrong with, you know, adopting positions where you feel more comfortable in a chair or something, but it's the, what you do for the majority of your time and how you start spacing out those things. Like we all know that, for example, I'm, I'm allowed to eat ice cream, but I'm not going to eat ice cream all the time, you know, and then there's often reasons for that. And just understanding that you can use this word comfort, and you can then get into, say, grounded living and be more comfortable. Like you can find ways to make it more comfortable that way. And it just becomes <clears throat> almost like habit formation where like if, you know, you make the floor more inviting on the ground more comfortable, you're more likely to do it. The same way if, you know, you only have a lazy boy and you're just always sitting on a lazy boy, of course you're going to sit on the lazy boy because it's really comfortable. Mm. so there will be things that we touch on throughout that are going to try and help people swing that over but a sense there isn't there isn't much wrong with being comfortable sometimes just trying to not be comfortable all the time is very useful yeah and yeah we'll explore that in in the sort of strategy section towards the end but it is um it's an important one to put on people's radar because yeah there is that it's a natural inclination to go towards comfort and there's you know a few things that you can switch you know mindset wise and also just how you're doing um, a ground living practice can, can help with that. Um, and from <clears throat> back to that evolutionary background, I suppose, um, and physiological background, then moving on the ground is really an inherent part of our natural development straight from birth. So, you know, we have these fundamental ground-based movement patterns like rolling to start with, and then actually just sitting on the ground in different positions, building up to squatting and crawling. Um, they all form the foundation of our overall functional capability that sets us up for a lot of the more complex activities like walking and running and jumping and throwing that we need to do or that we evolutionary had to, evolutionarily had to do in order to survive in a natural environment. So um, proficiency at these fundamental ground-based movements is actually a really important way that we build a foundation of coordination and um, capacity for those more complex movements that we all, that, that most people like to do even in modern times for, you know, sport and recreation. Yeah. And to that point, like without having the ground, we don't develop those skills. Hmm. So like, if you go like really simply, like there's always, for that long period, there was a lot of astronaut studies and what happened to their muscle mass and a lot of their bone mineral density, et cetera. And they obviously they all decline drastically because they don't have gravity. They don't have that stimulation because there's nothing to put the foot down or arm down, depending on if you're doing hand balance to like stimulate it. And when you look at that, it becomes evident that we kind of need the ground. Even mm -hmm. if you take away some of what we're talking about, you need the ground to move. Cause if you're trying <laughs> to run and you're not on the ground, you're not really running. Are you? you can't squat, not on the ground. So already it becomes inherently important that we need the ground. Exactly. Yeah. And there's, 
probably something worth talking about here is the ground reaction force. And, and we talked about in the movement nutrition podcast about how all these different loads um, get applied to our body through our own movement and some external forces and mm. that these loads create a, a certain level of nutrition in our cells and through that process of mechanotransduction. So um, obviously you've already listened to that podcast, so we don't need to go into that in depth, but there is something called the ground reaction force where, you know, Newton's law of um, every action will have an equal and opposite reaction. If our body provides force into the ground, then there'll be a equal and opposite ground reaction force that goes into our body. And that does can, can play a big role in, yeah, how our cells respond to movement. And so, like you said, in the case of an astronaut or say someone, um, you know, is just in the ocean or swimming, it's, it's different forces um, compared to the ground reaction force. And we spent the bulk of our evolutionary history mostly on the ground and interacting with the ground and experiencing those ground reaction forces. And so um, they're, they're quite important for our, the health of our musculoskeletal system. Mm. So mobility, mobility, hey, bit of mobility. Yeah. Let's, let's touch on that. Let's. So yeah, it, we, we all, I mean, we all hear a lot about mobility. It's, it is quite a, a buzzword in the health and fitness industry uh, these days. And, you know, there is, you do see a lot of debate about, what's mobility, what's flexibility and, you know, this and that. And it's, that's not necessarily what we're trying to get into today, but we want to explore mobility and how um, that relates to ground living and how ground living uh, facilitates uh, a, a really good level of functional mobility. So um, dictionary definition of mobility is super simple, just the ability to move or be moved freely and easily. Um, I like to think about mobility in two different ways. One is the sort of local or joint by joint, by joint range of motion, um, where a, a good example is, you know, how far can your hip joint move in each of its normal or natural ranges of motion uh, before another part of the body has to compensate? So, for instance, if you are pushing your hip into flexion, how far can the hip itself move into flexion before your lower back has to go into flexion to allow more of that sort of flexion movement? Um, and so this is where, you know, if your hip is really stiff into flexion and you can only get to 90 degrees, then your lower back is going to have to do a lot of comp compensation to account for that if you're doing, say, a squat. And then that will affect your efficiency and your experience of that squat versus if your hip can move all the way um, up past sort of, you know, 100, 120, 130 degrees flexion, then you'll, there'll have to be a lot less compensation in the lower back and that will affect the, the options and the experience that you have with certain movement patterns. So, and, I mean, a good point to add on there, which is a lot of people now like to, as a, and we get, hear a lot of physios that they want stretches. Um, yeah. And that means something to everyone, but essentially to touch on this local sort of joint by joint thing, you can have active ranges of motion and passive ranges of motion. So what, what James is like talking <laughs> about there is like, if you have a stiff hip and actively you're trying to do a squat and that hip does not go where you're trying to take it, you're still going to achieve a squat. You're still going to do it. It's just not necessarily going to be the most efficient manner in which to do the squat. Mm. And one, one of the issues is that then they go, okay, I've got to stretch this thing out and do something passive to change an active motion. 
And it doesn't always have the carryover because you're not getting that nervous system involved and engaged. So one of the big things we talk about with the grounded living is essentially you get some free mobility, both actively and passively. And just knowing what your mobility in certain joints can help you sort of dictate, you know, what you're going to do long-term, but understanding there is a difference there than that active and passive. I think it's very important when it comes to mobility. Yeah, I agree. And the, you know, the, the joint by joint concept isn't really a true picture of overall mobility, but it is quite a good lens to look at things because, um, you know, the, you'll only get a true level of or like a, an optimal level of capacity and efficiency if each of your joints is able to move in its sort of, I'm going to say optimal or natural range of motion. So it, it isn't natural or optimal for a hip to only be able to move to 90 degrees. Mm. Um, but, you know, you can work with it and your body can compensate in a really great way, but it is important to, um, you know, do things, whether it's exercises or lifestyle changes like ground living to improve that mobility uh, of that hip. And the, that leads into that sort of more global look at mobility which is pretty much your overall functional capability and so you know for us going through physio school and and placements and and myself i worked in aged care um for six months and mobility in that world is literally just an expression of how independently can you move and and what things can you do with your body Um, so we say a new resident comes into an aged care facility um, or someone has a fall, you go and assess their mobility status. And it is literally, can they sit and stand out of a chair? Can they walk? Um, What level of assistance does this person need to walk uh, or stand or do any of their daily activities? And so that's at the extreme end of sort of, I would say dysfunction or disability, but that, that sort of, general look at mobility could be applied to anything could be walking, running, jumping, climbing, you know, what actually can you do with your body? um, And can you interact with your environment uh, in all of these different ways? And so that global, the, the only reason I think we need that local look joint by joint is because as a society and as a culture, we've lost that global mobility, um, literally just through disuse. Like if we just did all of our natural movements from birth all the way through to adulthood, then we wouldn't be losing um, all of that global functional mobility. And I think, I think that's one of the assessment tools you get, not so much taught for aged care, but in Musk. And tell me if you got taught something different, but it was always global, local, global. Essentially, mm-hmm. you, the first thing that we get told to assess with clients is something that it is meaningful to them. So whether that is like being able to open a fridge or reach up onto, the, I don't know, the cupboard to pull something down or bend over and squat, like you get told whether it's innately or whether someone has thought about it long enough, do the global movement first. And then we go into the local factors of like, where is this person not moving, not able to move, has discomfort moving? And then you go back into that global look again, but evidently like the global comes first. And yeah, I think to your point, I think you're spot on. I think that if everyone was doing, if we all did just more of these regular movements and it was just more <laughs> well understood that that's what we should be doing, you would find a lot less need to look locally. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the exact same 
concept as with movement nutrition, like there would be no need for all these exercise supplements if everyone was just moving um, the way they naturally would. But the fact is we, do, we don't live in that natural environment anymore and we do have to work within the constraints of, you know, we're not all going to be, we've all got jobs and we've got all got other things that we need to do and we're working within a certain environment and we just need to figure out what kind of practices we can do and how we can work within this environment to at least get as close as possible to um, having some of those more natural inputs. And so, Mm. like we said, from that evolutionary background, then even when we were resting, so we'd be moving a lot, but even when we were resting, we would be resting on the ground and therefore we'd be having to get down onto the ground and then get back up off the ground when we wanted to. And we'd be doing that multiple times per day, whether that's just down into a squat position to rest or whether that's, you know, sitting in any number of different natural sitting positions, like a 90, 90 or a kneeling position or all of these things. And they actually, those positions really do expose our feet, our toes, our ankles, our knees, our hips, to all of these important ranges of motion. Like if you squat down, then obviously you're getting ankle dorsiflexion, you're getting um, full knee flexion, full hip flexion. You're getting exposure to all these things, but you're not actually doing an exercise per se. You're just squatting down into that position, but you do get exposure mm. to those to those movements. And, you know, in a kneeling position, then you're getting more plantar, ankle plantar flexion. And in a 90-90 position, um, then you're getting a lot more hip rotation. So the beauty of the ground is that it expose it exposes you to these positions and it encourages you to switch regularly between these positions because it's it's less comfortable to sit in one position for a long time and your body gives you these signals of like, oh, I want to change positions now. So it promotes variability. I think that's a really key point that when you're educating people in that first instance of like, okay, when you're on the computer, the laptop, particularly for work, if that's the way you're working, try kneeling, try squatting, try like slaying on your stomach, try just on your elbow. And the first reaction a lot of people have is that looks uncomfortable. It's like, it, it, it is like after a certain period of time, my body will then tell me, Hey, you should probably move. And we, we naturally do this in 90-90 sitting anyway. Like how many times have you or your friend, you've just seen someone sit there for a long period of time at the desk, they get a sore neck, they start rubbing the neck like, oh, my neck's so stiff, but then they go straight back to work. Whereas historically, they would you would change position. Mm. You wouldn't just go back to the thing that's causing you bother. You would try and find a new way. Whereas we've got these external constraints now, like you mentioned, with we have lives, we have works, we have jobs, we have all these things that have unfortunately started to dictate hey, you should sit still versus encouraging that movement and trying to flip that switch of, okay, maybe I should just start trying to change positions, even if it's 30 seconds, just getting used to it across time. I think, I mean, that's how I did it. And I sort of got it off you in that sense of like, just start sitting on the ground. And I remember it being very uncomfortable. Like, I don't, yeah, like it 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 hurt. It sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, after sitting on that comfortable couch for such a long time and then getting used to it, now it's like I I don't look at the couch like I want to sit on it. It's just I'd rather sit on the floor. Yeah, exactly. And so there is that element of getting, first of all, getting comfortable with the discomfort and being like, okay, I understand this is going to be uncomfortable. 
Um, but you know, that's part of why it's good for me and, and sort of accepting that and embracing that. And then also it gets to the point where it's actually less comfortable to sit in a chair to a degree. Um, you know, sometimes just laying down the lounge, a really comfy lounge is awesome, but it becomes, I get quite antsy now if I sit in a chair um, for too long. Mm. I'd much rather be on <laughs> the ground. He's got chair and anxiety. Yeah, yeah. It just sort of doesn't feel right. Whereas being on the ground um, just feels right. And it, it takes a while to get to that point. And, and obviously it may be that you do have to take some movement supplements and exercise supplements to mobilize enough um, to get to that point as well. But also it's, it is literally just exposure over time and, and we'll, we'll go through some strategies about how you can make that transition. It's quite similar to, to transitioning to barefoot shoes um, where, you, you know, you do have to allow your body that time where you're not just, not just fully jumping in the deep end, um, but also just, yeah, being okay with that little bit of discomfort step-by-step step as you progress towards. The and it's probably a, a good time to like add in like that assessment tool. So um, the sit and rise test, so people mm. can just practice it as they go through. So yeah. Jimmy, you want to just explain to yeah, so what sit, it is. Sit and rise test is a super, super simple test, <laughs> um, but it is, it's, well, I'll explain it first and I'll explain the relevance. So it is just, We'll actually, we'll have to link it so that people can visualize, visually see it. Um, but it's cross-legged, sitting down, lowering all the way down to the ground with control and then standing all the way back up without uncrossing your legs, without touching the ground with your arms um, and without losing your balance. And so it's a whole rating scale of, you know, you'll lose, you start with 10 points and you lose a point for every point of extra point of support that you use, like an arm down or two arms down. Um, if you lose balance, then you lose a point. Um, and if you uncross your legs and so that you don't have to do it in full, but you just note down how many points you lose and how well you scored. And the really interesting thing is the worst people score on this test, the the lower they score, the higher their risk of all-cause mortality. So the higher their risk of dying from anything, um, which is pretty wild. And it, at first people are <laughs> like, what? Like, no way. And it does seem like a bit voodoo. Like, oh, if you can't do this test, then you're going <laughs> to die of you know, a car accident. <laughs> um, but when you think about it, it is one, there's the aspect of falls being such a, a major killer in our society, especially in the elderly population. Um, and two, that test is just a really good indicator of how much movement nutrition you've been exposed to throughout your life. Um, therefore, you know, how much strength you have, how much mobility you have, how much balance you've got. Um, that's a good indicator of how much movement you've actually done, which is a good indicator of, you know, were you sedentary or not? And we know that sedentarism is a major, major risk factor for, um, you know, all the biggest killers, heart disease, cancer, um, diabetes and, and obviously chronic pain as well. And so not that chronic pain is a big killer, but that contributes to sedentarism cycle. Yeah. And so I think, I think that's where, like, if you give the example, so people understand with like the elderly and let's say there's someone who has been semi sedentary for a long time. So when they fall, often the thing you hear is they break the hip. 
Now, without getting into the specifics of it, once an older person goes into hospital after a broken hip and then they have it repaired, there's a big sequelae, like a sequence of events that there's a pretty big death rate after 12 months. Mm. Sort of, I think you'd have to quote someone else on a bit, like 75 plus, I think it is roughly that this happens because that senatorism, like you touched on, has so many different factors to it. So it could be physical health. It, it could be mental health because you're not getting outside or seeing your friends as much, which means there's some social health impacts. And when you start to look at all the things that it can affect in that sequence, then all of a sudden it becomes quite a big predictor of all-cause mortality. Now, that's not to say that everyone who you know falls over, breaks the hip is going to have that. But it just seems like on average, the people who, you know, have that more often than not have that sequelae, which is quite a bit of a, uh, it's interesting and it's a bit of a problem because it's quite preventable, wouldn't you mm. reckon? Like if we, mm. if people understood what they could be doing through most of their life, by the time that happens, when they fall, they might not break the hip because their hip, their hip is stronger. And if they do break the hip, they have options really to be more mobile or get around and still have all those social and psychological aspects. Yeah, 100%. And so what that is getting at is basically the more we can move throughout our life, the less likely we are going to die from any, <laughs> any, of, these, any of these bigger killers because, you know, from a lifestyle and sort of systemic health uh, point of view, then we are just more robust and resilient. Um, and we're also just harder to kill. Uh, if, if accidents do happen, we're just, yeah, again, we're more resilient to those kinds of things. So um yeah, it's not like a, a voodoo magic test, but it is a really good way for you to assess, you know, where are you at now with a combination of strength, mobility, balance. Um, and you can relate that to your overall, you can look back at your overall movement diet, like we talked about in the movement nutrition episode, um, and then retest that, you know, maybe monthly, maybe quarterly retest that test or it could be every day um <laughs> and just see how it changes over time with more of these ground living um practices that you add mm. into your life because it yeah that it is you know yes it's uncomfortable at first but it was also amazing how quickly you improve when you are just doing something daily um and frequently throughout the day as well yeah and like following up on that, there's like, so that we would call that, like say a musculoskeletal and nervous system based sort of change where mm -hmm. you're going to create these adaptations across time that allows your body to feel more confident in doing it. And like, there are other changes that can occur too. So whether that be from say like your GI health or your liver function, et cetera. But one of the ones we wanted to touch on was a little bit to do with tactile stimulation. And this whole concept sort of came from say Sally Goodard Blythe, who wrote a book um, the well-balanced child and it essentially goes through looking at reflexes of children, how they function and what, what optimal children look like, well-balanced children look like versus ones who aren't. And there seems to be a big component of tactile stimulation and a lot of the reflexes are similar. And the, what she talks about is understanding that if you have that stimulation, which you get more with ground living because you're on the ground rolling around, you're crawling, doing those things versus I think you and Mac may have talked about this in a previous podcast, like rushing to get to standing or rushing to get to walking. Mm. You're allowing your, your child more time to develop. And that seems to have some sort of hold true in adults as well. So they've done some research in rats that's sort of shown that if you have tactile stimulation, you can activate 
what we call the HPA, so the hypo- hypothalamus pituitary axis. Now, you don't need to understand that in full, re- in full context, but essentially that there is going to affect a lot of your endocratic system. Now, the, the reason that's important is that's going to affect your sleep, it's going to affect your mood, it's going to affect how you exercise. And there is some slow but supporting evidence that tactile stimulation is going to have an effect on all those things and kind of vice versa. Now, it's not to say that you can't get that uh, stimulation from, say, touch from other people or from, say, um, theraguns, like vibration. No one's really looked at all that stuff yet. But if I lay on the ground, I'm getting a lot of tactile feedback. If I'm rolling on the ground and and I'm having fun, say, doing BJJ, I'm getting a lot of that feedback. It's going to help promote growth hormone. It's going to help promote serotonin. It's going to help promote melatonin for sleep. So without needing to do much other than just be and live on the ground, all these other health markers seem to start increasing, which is quite interesting, like as a concept, because we did, I didn't learn about that at uni at all. And there's more research needed in the area, but just to think that something so simple could start to affect your overall health. And honestly, you don't have to do anything, but you just, you can be on the ground and get the feedback, which is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that's the biggest point that we're trying to get across is that it's not it's not necessarily about adding more stuff into your life. Like, Oh, I've got to add in all these ground movements, although that is good to do. Mm. Um, But it's, you know, more on the line of taking away certain things. So like, or or subtracting, just subtracting time spent in a chair, you're either going to have to be standing or you're going to be on the ground. If you're not in a chair, those are pretty much your two options. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, it's, and it, yeah, it's subtracting those things. It is adding, purposely adding variability. Um, but the, the point is it's not, you're not trying to take up more time out of your day to do these things. It's just switching certain things in your day so that it just becomes part of your lifestyle. And it's just, it's just done as a habit throughout the day. Kind of like a dis- addition <laughs> by subtraction. Yeah. By subtracting, sitting in a chair, you're going to add these additional health markers. Yeah. And it, you don't have to put in any extra time. Like if you're, let's say you're going to watch TV, you could just simply sit on the floor and watch TV, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you've made that addition to hip mobility and neuromuscular changes and maybe some endocratic changes, but you're still doing the same thing and you haven't had to add extra time in your day to do it. Exactly, yeah. Um, and on that health point of view, like I think maybe delving into more of these sort of systemic physiological health benefits We'll, could go into a whole nother podcast. We're not going to explore it super deeply in this podcast, but there is also uh, a concept called grounding or earthing where there's a book called earthing um, that just goes into the fact that, you know, we are electrical, ma- electric, electromagnetic beings. Um, the earth has an electrical charge. The atmosphere has a more of a positive charge, um, earth being negative. Um, and this is how, you know, lightning works. And, um, you know, if there's a positive charge up there and the lightning comes down to the earth to ground to dissipate that positive charge. So there's a, a lot of these electro electrical processes going on around us. Um, and obviously, if you think about electrical appliances, uh, a lot of them have to be grounded to the earth to make sure that the, the positive charge doesn't build up and, and create a fire. And so there's this concept of you know we've always been connected to the earth we're electrical beings we're supposed to get all of these we're supposed to be balanced out by the negative charge of the earth Um, and the positive charge within our body is that sort of inflammatory 
those inflammatory processes that can actually be really damaging if they're um, constantly there. Obviously, inflammation is a healing response. It can be really helpful in the short term in certain um, contexts, but if you have chronic unresolved inflammation, it can uh, or it does predispose you to a lot of uh, chronic conditions like heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and so on. And so it's actually quite uh strange that we have disconnected from the earth through rubber-soled shoes so the, the rubber-soled shoes and obviously all of these buildings that we've created kind of disconnect us from that charge concrete yeah. footpaths yeah all that stuff all of that stuff and so you know there's, there's not a huge amount of research in the area the, the book is quite interesting and there is also a documentary i think you can watch on youtube so we'll, we'll um, link all of those things um, but like I said, I think we'll delve into it ourselves a bit more and, and get another podcast going. But the concept itself does seem to make a, a good amount of physiological sense. And the good thing as well is you don't really need research to, to have a crack and just go for a barefoot walk on grass. I mean, if you're listening to this, you're already sold on that concept anyway. <laughs> um, but we, we thought it was worth mentioning because, you know, there are all these uh, musculoskeletal benefits of being on the ground more, but it does go deeper than that. And there are a lot of, um, you know, we, we don't want to just be spending time on the ground in your house, um, mm. you know, in your, on your carpet. You want to actually be out in nature, spending time in the ground as well. And there's all these other benefits to being out in nature. Uh, aside from just the musculoskeletal benefits, which are, which are incredible, but you want to be getting all of it. Yeah. I think that's the, we'll, we'll add a layer to the podcast to go into it more. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting things speaking to people is like when they are walking barefoot, they often get asked like, why are you doing it? And if you're someone who wants to know like, well, why is this important? I think throughout this whole process, you're going to learn a lot more about that. But even if, why are you walking barefoot outside? You aren't, you scared of your feet getting dirty. If you need <laughs> something to sell someone, just think about the variety, like mm. sand versus dirt versus grass versus hilly terrain versus cement. They're all different. There is all different stimulus. And they're going to make your foot and those 33 joints move in so many different ways than they would in a cushion shoe on concrete or footpath. Yeah. So even if you start with that as a base idea to explain to friends, family or someone, then there are these other layers which will be touched on later. I think that might help people as well, just so yeah. they have something to go away with. Yeah, and that's a, that's a huge thing we bang on about is just the variability of movement, the variability of inputs, because, yeah, we've obviously discussed it in the movement nutrition episode, but that is a major key that the most, most people are missing. Even if they're doing a lot of activity, they're, they're missing the variability. And even if your feet are doing a lot of activity, um, they could be missing the variability of texture and, and the variability of that electrical connection with the ground and, and so on. Mm. So, yeah. Um, so we want to talk through some strategies, but to help with that or to preface that, we'll just talk through some of the barriers that um, people generally have. And they usually fall under the categories of, you know, comfort, hygiene, and just sort of cultural barriers. Um, so comfort, we've already touched on a little bit throughout, but like we said, it does just feel really good to be on a really cushy couch. Um, and there, like we said, there's nothing wrong with that. And we don't want to, we're not trying to demonize sitting or comfort to the point where, you know, you, you, 
have to chuck out all your furniture and you never touch it again. And there are people who, who like to or need to take that strategy in order to sort of break the habit. Um, mm. But there's, you know, there's certainly nothing wrong with having that balance between um, building up a habit of spending more time on the ground, but also enjoying a really nice comfy couch here and there. Like it's not so much that, you know, sitting or, um, you know, couches are the, are the devil. It's just that we need to do, because we already do so much of that, we need to start doing less and less. Um, but and I think it's going to, it's going to be different for everyone, right? Like I mm. think what you define as comfort will be different to what I define as comfort, even though they're probably pretty similar versus what someone else will define as comfort. And then, I mean, a really good example is like Alex and old, like the free climber, like he is comfortable climbing massive walls without a harness or rope or anything with just a chalk bag. Now I don't find that comfortable. I find that <laughs> quite frightening, but like this idea of what comfort and discomfort is to your point, evolutionarily, we are designed to hunt for comfort because it makes us feel safe, but you can change your mindset around what is and isn't comfortable to become more comfortable with a wider spectrum of things. Yeah. <laughs> and the more that you slowly like delve into trying to do these new things that might frighten you or make you, I think we touched on last time, like if you feel excited about it or you feel a little bit fearful, it's probably a good thing to try and do. And by learning to push that barrier further and further out of like, it might be, I'm scared to go for a, a barefoot walk. Okay. Barefoot around the house. Okay. I got comfortable with that. How about barefoot outside and back on the concrete? Okay. Barefoot outside on the concrete onto the grass oval. Like you're going to push that barrier further and further, which in essence makes you a more resilient person, particularly in that aspect of barefoot walking. And then that goes with everything, whether that be hot, cold stimulus, whether that be going fast in a car, like, you know, jumping out of a plane, bungee jumping, climbing mountains, like that whole concept is just slowly uh, getting yourself more resilient to stress and 100%. changing what you perceive to be comfortable. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, it's important not to think of yourself as, you know, weak-willed or um, not to sort of feel guilty for enjoying comfort because evolutionarily it, it's actually really good for us to enjoy those comfortable feelings. Like the classic things that you think of for comfort is like warmth, shelter um, and softness, you know, that, that is good for our body to be in those positions where we are safe from danger and, and, you know, a lot of dis things that we find uncomfortable is actually our brain saying, oh, that's potentially dangerous. Or that if you sit on a, if you sit on a rock and it's stabbing into your bum and it's uncomfortable, then uh, over time, the reason that's uncomfortable is because over time that would damage the cells that uh, are sitting on that rock. And so yeah. it, it is important feedback and you need to, like you say, you can change your mindset and you can over time change your experience of these uh, inputs but you know it's not a bad thing to enjoy comfort um, but it's good to expand the range and and discomfort like we said it's potential danger but it's also potential growth and if you can you know learning skills exercising exposing yourself to cold and heat they're all uncomfortable um, but they do provide a lot of that opportunity for growth that that are um, you know that is like you said it makes us into a, a more resilient being so yeah um, and then following up on that, like from the comfort section is like talking about hygiene. And mm. I've always found this a fascinating one, like as some context, like I grew up on a farm. So I always ran around in dirt, played in dirt, swim in water that was different. And I never really thought anything about it, nor did my parents, because that was just life. But 
coming to live in the city, everything is different. Like the way people view what is clean or unclean or dirty, not dirty, the perception's different and they've grown up differently. I don't know if you found that as well, just like, because you were closer to the city, I think, when you started. Yeah, I, I grew up in the city. My parents were pretty big on, like we had a really big backyard and we played down there all the time in the dirt, in the trees, you know, um, it was quite encouraged. Um, but certainly there is a cultural trend to being very, um scared of bacteria and you see all the Dettol ads and it's like kills 99% of germs and and so on and um you know people do have this view of the ground as like unhygienic and that's this is a big reason why shoes came about it as well um as far as i understand then you know in in these cities that were originally being developed then sanitary systems weren't as good and so there was poo all over the ground basically from animals and humans and if you didn't have shoes and you were sort of interacting with that all the time it was quite dirty but um you know these days things have changed if if you're worried about your the ground in your house or your living space being dirty you can clean it if you want to um, Shocking. you know <laughs> be cleaner um yeah. <laughs> And if you're worried about, you know, the, the dirt, like if you're out there interacting with the ground, obviously this isn't so much for the people listening because we know that this it likely isn't you. Um, but, you know, as a general um, overview, then a lot of humans are concerned about that. And, you know, it's good to bring people's attention to the hygiene hypothesis that um, being too clean and not exposing yourself to enough dirt and, and you know, natural bacteria uh, is actually damaging to your immune system because it doesn't get that hormetic stressor or that stress that makes it more resilient and exposes it to challenge so that it can actually um, strengthen. Hmm. And I think it's a good point where looking at why shoes developed, if you know, and there's going to be lots to talk about that within this course. I'm just going back through a lot of the TFC podcast, but like a lot of the reasons shoes develop aren't always just to do with protection of hygiene. Like there's a lot of the aesthetic reasons as well. Yeah. Like, and yeah, you find, yeah. So one of the examples is like the army boots, like and boots themselves were designed to be aesthetically pleasing. So that's why they are the same on left and right side. So they're not like a, a shoe or a foot shape. And to a point, I understand that aesthetically things that look cleaner. So whether it be indoor or the cities with the, the pathways look a bit cleaner, a little aesthetically pleasing, but like going outside and looking at a really nice patch of grass in the forest, again, is something that I know you and I both just think looks amazing. Mm. And that is not so much a who's right or wrong. That's just a perception, mm. right? So like what, appears clean again could be dirty to you but clean to me and vice versa yeah. so these are just perceptions that we can shift yeah and and you know there's nothing wrong with wanting you know feeling like you want to be clean um and having a shower at the end of the day and so on um but it's it's sort of just making sure that you understand that some exposure to bacteria and the ground is actually really good for you it can actually strengthen your immune system um, and just, yeah, you know, be hygienic for sure, but, you know, don't mm. be a, a germaphobe <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Find, yeah. find your happy middle ground somewhere. Yeah. And the last barrier that sort of we identify was the cultural and environmental barrier. And this is, this is probably one of the bigger ones because it just is so culturally 
accepted or it's such the cultural norm that you do just sit all the time. Um, you know, every, every office space and school and public transport and cars, like they're all set up with chairs so that, that you can sit down and, and people just expect it. It's like, Oh, you know, do you want a seat? Like, take a seat. Like, um, mm. and it's like, it's not, it's quite strange for someone to sit on the ground basically <laughs> by choice. Like it, you, it's people will generally only sit on the ground if the chair isn't available. Whereas if you choose to sit on the ground, it's like, Oh, that's weird. Um, also very interesting as a note. So we we've got escalators in like the shopping centers here. And I think like sometime last year, I just decided to start squatting on them on the way down just because I was like, I wonder what this feels like. And the, you mean the escalator is what? 15 meters long most of the time the number of looks you get for just deep squatting whilst holding your grocery bags <laughs> is almost yeah. bewildering it's quite yeah. funny but it's again that comes to like normalizing like these just random movements and you touched on it before like a natural resting posture is squatting so like what i'm doing is just resting down everyone just looks at you because it's not currently the cultural norm yes exactly and so that one's going to be a bit of a, a tougher one to change. Um, and I think a lot of it just comes down to being okay with being the weird one. Like in this today's society, you do have to be weird to be healthy. Um, and that being said, you know, if you, if you go at it with full force, if you go, look, ground living, it makes so much sense. I want to do more of it. Then other people go, oh, well, that's cool. Like you, you sit on the ground to have your dinner, like me and my partner at home, We'll sit on the ground to have dinner every night. And then, you know, if we want to play a game, we'll mostly play it on the ground. If we have people over for dinner, we might sit at the table and that's fine too. But it's, you know, it's all we might get them over and sit on the ground. So it's just, um, you know, it's about who you're, who you're working with. Like if, if we get, say, our parents over, they might not necessarily want to sit on the ground because it's so uncomfortable. They can't enjoy the meal um but you know if we had tom over then i'm pretty sure we'd sit on the ground <laughs> and that would be on the ground yeah uh, and it's an interesting thing i think um it must have been stephen covey who wrote about it like this your circle of influence right like you or i or you as a foot nerd are not going to be able to change the world by ourselves it's not possible it's not feasible but if you become your within your circle of influence like that guy like i'm the person who sits on the ground oh i wonder why he does that that's going to spark someone to ask a question or if mm. you're squatting in public it, or barefoot in public, you just might be that person that sparks the next person that sparks the next person. And thankfully at about our age, we've sort of seen like the back end of the lot of sitting nine to five jobs into this whole like real boom of entrepreneurs online stuff and all this movement stuff in physio. Mm. And so we've been quite fortunate to see and the shifts changing now. Like we know heaps of people who, uh, very similar to us with a lot of the lifestyle values and habits and movement habits and like the ways we catch up and stuff. Obviously it's not there yet, but it's becoming easier. And if you're the node to change, just think around the world, even within this program, there's hundreds of people who are being those little nodes. Like, and eventually it will it'll change. It'll just take a while, but yeah. you're a part of like a greater purpose, which is quite cool to think, you know, in a like big old viewpoint. It is, it is cool to think. And, and although it's nowhere near the norm, I don't think I've ever had someone, you know, ask me about well, why do you sit on the ground or I've never talked to someone about ground living and they go, Oh, that doesn't make any sense. They go, Oh, oh yeah, true. Of course. That yeah. makes sense. And whether they do it a lot or not, it's sort of up to them, but you know, you can plant seeds 
Um, but yeah, really it's, it's about living by example, which is what this whole program is about. It's, it's mm. saying, you know, I'm okay to be the weird one and sit on the ground. Eventually the truth will come out and more <laughs> and more join people me. will do it. And you know, it's, <laughs> it's like, a, yeah, yeah. People, more people will join you. Um, and the amount of people I've got, you know, in just in my own circle, it's, it's awesome how many people have adopted more of that ground living and it doesn't have to be all or nothing. It, it, mm. you know, even if you just add in some ground living, um, then, then that's great. So that's pretty much the, like the strategies we've kind of touched on most of them throughout, but we want to normalize it for ourselves. either normalize it for ourselves and just be absolutely okay with, I'm the one who spends heaps of time on the ground. Um, and also normalize it in our friendship circle or, you know, ideally in your workplace as well, but that might be a little harder, um, depending what your workplace is. Um, and then over time that can help shift sort of the society's perspectives and the general worldview. Um, then there's a little bit of environmental design that can help because if you, if your only options are on this comfy couch and a hardwood floor, um, you might go towards the hardwood couch a little bit more at uh, the, the comfy couch, hardwood couch, hardwood couch. That'd be good. Um, yeah, sounds comfortable. yeah. So if you can set up your environment a little bit to be just that little bit more comfortable or functional. So having say some jujitsu or uh, mats on the ground or just some, some level of cushioning on the ground, um, and say, for example, a table, like a, a little ground living table that we sell or just some kind of little coffee table. Um, that means you can do your work or you can eat on the ground. Whereas if you don't have anything to do that and it's, it's just not as inviting. Mm, it makes it harder, like particularly with eating dinner. Cause like my, my partner, I wear the same, we eat all our meals on the ground and it, it's, it doesn't take a while to get used to, but like having that table, for example, has made it much easier. You just stack it up. So I might chuck a couple of yoga blocks under there to get it at a certain height, depending upon the dish. And all of a sudden, like it's actually just very easy to have dinner there. Mm. And just by virtue of having to get the yoga blocks, I have to move to get the yoga blocks. So you get that little bit extra movement, which is also a good, a good thing. <laughs> um, it all adds and up. Like we, yeah. It all, and just the small bits. Like I think, with our environmental design, like I know that you've got a lot of those jiu-jitsu comfortable mats. We've got a bunch of gym matting in here to just get on the ground and roll around because we live in an apartment, so there's tiles and like mm. it's not it's not comfortable to roll around on that. So just nah. making it more accessible um, and very simple is probably the best way to go. Yeah, simpler the better and the more accessible. You just want that that lifestyle being on the ground to be as as easy as possible. Um, and, you know, over time, if you want to start with heaps of cushioning, that's great. If you want to, you, you know, we've got a, um, a footnote down here, Mitch, who creates uh, ground living cushions. So really comfortable cushions that you can sit on and boy, are they comfy. But oh, yes, you, they are. <laughs> you still get into these important positions and they facilitate you getting in those positions. So if you need to prop yourself up with cushions, doesn't matter how many cushions you need at first. If that's what you need to do to get on the ground, awesome. We're not saying you have to go straight into you know, full, full unsupported ground, but, you know, transition there. That's probably, um, it's probably a good point there. Like when you touched on what the workplace maybe being one of the hardest places to do it, like to get this transition, like start small and like starting small, this may seem silly. Like let's say you're sitting at a desk and you're at a work office, like even getting into say barefoot shoes versus your work shoes 
or like your traditional like work boots. That's a small change, but people start to look at it differently. They start to quiz. Eventually people either kind of start to accept it or they question it. And that is like the start in a series of, can I get to the ground? So in our workplace, I mean, I'm the only one who does it, but when I have my initial consults with most people now, I'm not sitting in a chair. I'm actually kneeling on the ground or sitting below them. Um, There's a few like power dynamics there, but essentially I'm always on the ground, but I didn't jump from, I'm going to just go straight to the ground. People just got used to the idea of me as a practitioner being a barefoot grounded person and then slowly just grounded shoes, toe socks, kneeling, and now I'm just sitting on the ground. And you can create whatever environment that you would like. It might take a bit of time, but it also has to come with a bit of confidence. Like you have to do it confidently and you have to have your own justification reasons. And to your point, no one has ever questioned me why I sit on the ground and, and then walked away gone. That makes no sense. I don't understand why you would do that. Mm. It's often more of the intrigue of that's actually interesting. That's a, I haven't thought about it that way or I haven't seen that point of view. And again, it's just <laughs> take your time, but slow, slow, small changes eventually will add up. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's sort of that environmental design and lifestyle. Well, there's, you know, there's certain activities and lifestyle things that you can add in. So doing things like picnics, like sounds really simple, but you don't, well, generally you don't take chairs to a picnic. You just sit <laughs> yeah. on a picnic rope um, or, you know, going out for camping trips in nature. You're just more likely to spend more time interacting with the ground in those environments because you just generally have less of those chairs and couches and things around. Um, and also, you know, we've, we've talked about how it should be part of your lifestyle, but delving into some activities that put you on the ground, like things, martial arts, like Brazilian, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, for example, is a great one um, because it's, it is mostly ground-based. Um, doing things like animal flow, yoga, pil- uh, you know, mat pilates, <clears throat> um, MoveNat is like a, a natural movement system. They do a lot of ground movements in there. Um, you know, there's certain other, you know, things like I know Tom's done original strength certifications. Um, we both have done and are interested in the GMB method and certification. So there's these, there's all of these different um, training modalities that will help you improve your uh, confidence and comfortability, I suppose on the ground, both moving and just living and sitting. Mm-hmm. So we can, we can link some of those systems as well um, in the resources, but you know, that is a really good, a really good thing. And it, it does help to supplement. Like we said, you know, if you can be spending as much time on the ground as possible, that's great. But for some people, they'll only be able to spend maybe an hour or two on the ground as part of their lifestyle. Um, and if you do need to add in more stuff to supplement that, um, th- those ground-based activities can be really fun and they can be a really great way to improve your strength and mobility and, um, and coordination. So highly recommend that as well. And even with that, find a coach. If you are struggling to know what uh, movements might be best for you or something you want to try, like we've both had numerous coaches in just different disciplines and just get out, try it. And look, if you don't like it, change it, change the approach, do exactly. something different. Mm. Exactly. And um yeah. And just, 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 yeah. Well, that's that whole element of play. Um, similar to what we talked about in the last one is just exploring things, trying it out, find, um, yeah, either a coach or a system that you like to look of. Um, you know, some people might really like the look of um, GMB. Some people might really like the look of BJJ. 
find a system, follow it for a while. If it, if it resonates with you and you like it, keep doing it. Otherwise switch it up. Um, and that's, that's a good part of variability as well is switching it up mm. regularly. But um, that's pretty much where we'd wrap it up. Um, yeah. All of those strategies, you might find other strategies that work for you, but generally it'll come back down to some kind of environmental or lifestyle design uh, and some focused practice, which, which all form a really good part of ground living. So. And I mean, if people find like, or they have their own strategies, stuff that we haven't mentioned, even stuff we've mentioned, you got photos or other stories, send them through. That'd be great. Yeah. And again, like we mentioned every podcast, the, these podcasts would be built and to learn more. So if we can learn more, you guys can learn more and later we can update the potty to make it with more examples or there's other things that would be great to hear the feedback on it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we absolutely would love to hear feedback and just like for, you know, for you listening, it's all a learning journey for us teaching um, or sharing our um, thoughts and knowledge and, and so forth and so forth then it's a learning journey for us as well so we want to get better at teaching um and we want to help you guys as much as possible so any feedback or questions we're very very happy to receive Mm. otherwise yeah we're all good sweet perfect thanks for listening guys and um yeah just check out all of the resources uh in the notes and we'll catch you on the next one